All right, so we are going to try and travel at warp speed tonight as we cover two uh, topics, two church, or two uh, chapters that uh, can go quite in depth. So we've got a lot of scripture to look at. We've got uh, several ideas to pull from from these chapters as well. So uh, we're just going to jump right in. And um, if you've got comments or questions along the way, feel free to, to stop me. But I want to try and get us a little bit of time to... Um, to get to the discussion as well this evening. So uh, to start off, we're going to start in chapter 3. Um, and the main idea of that is, um, you know, what is a true church? Well, a true church preaches the pure gospel, faithfully administers the Lord's Supper and baptism, so the ordinances of the church, and practices purifying church discipline. Um, so he starts off with a, with a warning to the church, right? And this comes from Matthew 7. Uh, 15 through 20, and it says, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This you will recognize them by their fruits." So Jesus warns the church in this passage that false teachers are coming, um, or were coming at that point, and still are coming. Um, so how do we tell the difference between a false church and a true church? Um, let's, let's stop here real quick and just kind of throw out some ideas. So how do we, how do we tell the difference between a, a false church and a, and a true church? Whether they're preaching the gospel. Okay. So whether they're preaching the gospel... Okay. Sure. So whether or not they're discipling um, through uh, Sunday schools and small groups and things like that, and they're teaching. What are some signs of a false church? Feel good. Feel good. Okay. Never read scripture. Never read scripture. Okay. All right. Okay, sure. Maybe the, the sentiment of, oh, just everybody's welcome, come as you are. You know, that's true for a true church, but then to take it a step further, which pushes them into falsehood would be, you know, you don't need to change who you are or change, you know, anything about yourself. You're just welcome. We're glad to have you here. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, Scripture calls us, to a change, right? It calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It calls us to be uh, transformed in the gospel. So um, there's, there's three marks of the pure gospel that's, that's preached. Um, so number one, they preach the pure gospel. So Mark 1, 1, 15, uh, Mark 1, 15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been found, founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered, you, uh, delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ dies for our, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. In Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So a true church must preach the true gospel. They also must preach about sin. So Romans 3.10-18 and 23, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We see also Romans 6:23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, and they say, they make this point, to, to make light of our rebellion against God is dangerous and deceptive. We see in Isaiah 1, 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So we see this, it, it's, it's important for a, a, a true church to not only preach the gospel, but to also preach about our sin, because we need to understand our position before God so that we know His holiness, number one, and our sinfulness, number two. And so we have to recognize how, how wide that divide is. You know, the, the more we grow in our faith, the more we recognize how sinful we are as people. The more we're called to repent, the more that um, the gospel transforms our lives and makes us more uh, like Jesus. Um, we also have to preach grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We just did a whole series on the five solas, um, and these are three of them right here. Um, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. The gospel that saves declares without shame that forgiveness of our sins is an undeserved, unearned gift from God. A true church must also preach the need for repentance. So we recognize the gospel message, right? So we recognize our sin. We recognize the grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. And then our need for repentance. Any gospel that does not radically affect the way that we live is a false gospel. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Bless you. Secondly, true churches faithfully administer baptism and the Lord's Supper. So Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. True churches celebrate the ordinances as illustrations of the gospel. False churches often turn them into a way to earn our standing before God. So in this case, 
you know, a false church may say, come be baptized so that you can be saved. You know, there's this, there's this mystical idea that the, somehow being baptized in the water is, is a salvific act in, its, in and of itself, or that taking communion is a, is a salvific act in and of itself, or it gets you into right standing with God. Uh, we know differently. We know that, you know, Jesus Christ is the only one that does that, um, and that the, the ordinances of the church are uh, public proclamations or public um, statements of faith in, in the gospel that we believe in Jesus. So our baptism is, as believers' baptism, which is done by immersion, and we're going to get into baptism a little bit more uh, in, in the coming weeks, but um, it, it is a, a public statement or profession of our faith in Jesus that we have, we have declared Him that we are, like, declared Him our Savior, declared that we are believers in Jesus, and we are publicly professing to the congregation that we are, um, we are saved. And as doing so in obedience, we are baptized um, before the church as a public profession of our faith. Um, and likewise, when we gather for communion, um, we illustrate that as well in um, coming together with the gathered body in remembrance of, of Christ and what He has done. So the ordinances must be done in accordance with gospel preaching. So baptism serves as a physical symbol of the spiritual reality that a sinner has been made alive by Jesus. We see this in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 through 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Um, that should be under communion. Sorry. Um, it's, anyway, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is a new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So they must be participated by in faith. Um, so one way false churches abuse the ordinances is by inviting unbelievers to partake in them. So, um, you know, we, we practice open communion here in that you don't have to be a member of Nanceman River to partake in communion. But we do specify that you have to be a professing believer in Jesus Christ, um, have to have been, been saved by you know, have a, have a salvation in Jesus Christ in order to partake in communion. Some churches would just say, if you want to take communion, go ahead. Um, and, you know, not, not wanting to exclude anybody. But um, it's, it's, it's a teaching moment for those who are not under the, um, you know, who, who, who are not in faith. Um, it's a teaching moment for them to understand why we observe communion, how we observe communion, and what that means for us when we do it. And so that's usually accompanied by um, some sort of a, a, a sermonette or a, a devotion or something along those lines that helps remind us of the gospel, helps set the stage for um, our response in communion. Um, thirdly, uh, true churches practice purifying church discipline. So 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So holiness is a big key here. But a true church is a holy church. So they have love and obedience to God, as John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. They have love for one another. We see in John thirteen thirty four through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we've talked about this before, right? We've talked about um, 
demonstrating the love of the love of God to to others in our community, but also to our like to each other in the church, right? As a demonstration of our love, um, and we've had this verse before. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, additionally, church discipline guards the reputation of Jesus. So, as a as an aside here, um, I was in a church uh, not uh, in a church before this one. Um, and there, I was able to witness two public church discipline meetings, I guess. They called it like a family meeting, um, and where people had been um, either had, had uh, outed themselves as being in some, some sort of unrepentant sin, and, um, and the church then brought them before the church and said, you know, hey, we rebuke you, um, you know, we rebuke what you did, and, you know, this is our, our public proclamation that you are in sin and um, have, not, have not been repentant of it. Um, you know, we will, we will love you, we will help you through this, but um, basically you need to make some changes. Um, and then there was another one where uh, a gentleman was arrested um, for something he had done, and... It wasn't done before the entire church, but it was done before a, a gathering, um, and it was in in line with, um, you know, you have you have damaged the name of, you have damaged the name of this church and of of Jesus in the community because who you profess to be and who you who you ended up being were, were different, um, and so. Um, you know, again, there was a there was a church discipline thing there, but then care offered for the family um, as you know, this person was going to have to go to jail, um, and so there were certain things there that you know we we have to guard the reputation not only of the church but of the message that we preach and of of Jesus as you know we 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 hear the argument oh the church is full of hypocrites well when issues like this come up, come about you know. The question rises: Well, what are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to are you going to do something about it? Are you going to hold this person accountable? Is is there going to be any sort of, you know, repercussion and that kind of thing? And so, um, there are, there are certain ways that are that this is done um, in church. Um, but um, we talk a little bit about church discipline. So we see Matthew seven five. Um, Jesus says, "You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye." Um, and so these things are done in, in love. You know, these, these types of things are done as, as, um, as a family would. You know, if you're disciplining members of your family for, for some reason, um, or children. Um, Matthew 15, 7 says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, the people, the, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain uh, do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Um, and then 23, 1 through 39, and this is, I'm not going to read this because um, it's a long passage, but it's the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Um, and one of my favorite, um, favorite one of the woes is um, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead people's bones. Um, and it's just, Jesus is just taking the Pharisees and scribes to task, kind of calling them out of, you know, you, you project this image of who you think you are. Um, and who you who you try to be, but inwardly you're 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 false. Um, and so um, we have to protect um, protect ourselves uh, against that. Um, but there's also a restorative fact as well. 
um, that, that goes into church discipline. James 5, 19 through 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Uh, we also see in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual would restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Timothy 5:20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And then 1 Corinthians 5, 1-13, again, it's a lengthy passage, so, um, but it basically talks about um, sexual immor- immorality defiling the church. Um, and so it kind of, you know, running, running rampant within the church and how it, how it defiled the church. Um, so to recap the, the third chapter, um, we have the, that a true, cha- a true, true church um, preaches the gospel, preaches the pure gospel, faithfully administers the Lord's Supper and baptism, and practices purifying church discipline. Um, So I'm going to pause here before I move on to chapter 4 and ask if there are any thoughts, anything stick out about this. There was certainly an abundance of Scripture in this chapter to to help kind of guide us through that a little bit. I was thankful for the many words of Jesus that were, were pulled out in here, um, which was helpful as well. Because who would know better than Jesus <laughs> when it comes to matters of the church? So, anything stick out to you guys? Yes. So the question is, how often do we see church discipline? And thankfully here, rarely. Um, you know, and whether or not that's that's done in 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 private you know maybe there's there's a there's an issue and you know between accountability partners or something like that people following matthew 18 they they go to that person and say hey you're in you're in sin you know but a formal church discipline proceeding well, um, next step, right? yeah exactly exactly right and so you know um you know it, it's it's it is rare but occasionally you'll have a you know, an instance where, you know, something, something egregious happens and you have to, you have to deal with it. Yeah. It's definitely not a, uh, a place anybody wants to be. Um, that's for sure. So. I've only seen, I've been here forever, and I've only seen it in a public mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of times these things are able to, to be resolved in that, that one person or two or three Kind of thing, or even you know before the before the elders or things like that, um, those those types of things are able to be resolved. Um, but I think it goes before the body if if that person is just in complete unrepentance. Yeah, and they're like, I haven't done anything wrong. Well, um, the test would say that's a lie. Um, it, it's just that that you know that open denial, of re, you know, refusal to admit. Um, wrongdoing and, and to, um, you know, like we said in First Timothy, you know, for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that all, the rest may stand in fear. So, um, you know, rebuking somebody publicly in, in the, um, you know, in, in the presence of the congregation is, um, sends a very, um, 
a very stern warning to, to others, um, you know, and, and at times, you know, people have been removed from membership from a, from a church. Um, you know, they have been, you know, you are, you are in open rebellion. You are in, you know, open denial of the teachings of Scripture. You're, you know, th- those types of things. Um, you're unrepentant, and therefore, you know, you are no longer recognized as a member of this body um, because you're going against everything that, that we teach. Um, now, that person could go to the church down the road, you know, nobody would know the difference. But, um, you know, that's, that's something where, you know, that's done to protect the flock, to protect that person or protect the church from having someone sowing dissension or, you know, divisiveness in, in the church, uh, things like that. Um, the good thing isn't necessarily that it happens a lot, but that a church is willing to do it when it needs to be done. Right. Yeah. It's, um, you know, yes, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sign of a, you know, healthy, healthy church leadership is that you have people that are, that are willing to deal with it, um, to take it, on, you know, head on and, and to, you know, um, you know for, the, for the health and sake of the body of, the, of believers. Um, so any others before I move on? Mm-hmm. Um, I can say that so growing in Puerto Rico, going over there, going to a church over there, I can say that I, I was in a church where people were definitely living in, in sin and, uh, and there were no reper- repercussions. Mm. It was culturally accepted, so it was really, um, <coughs> it was never addressed. So a lot of things that were never addressed. And as, as a result, up to date, there has, there has been uh, four people that have taken their own lives mm. from our small church out of 100 people. Oh, wow. Um, but I can also say that I've been I've, I've had the great opportunity of, to be in, in a church where they take that very serious mm-hmm. talking specifically when I was in D.C. Mm-hmm. we had the, the opportunity to as members to be part of uh, um, of this decision with this member who uh, was living in sin um, unrepentant sin and it was beautiful to see the process how the members in true, real love, and how the elders and, and pastor, they pretty much surrounded the person <coughs> with knowledge, love, prayer, mm-hmm. uh, calling the person to repentance and love. Mm-hmm. With like, hey, you're, you're, you're sinning, what's going on now? Like, very loving, like really coaching and, and protecting this, this chief, right? And, and the chief just wanted to go the other way. Mm-hmm. And um, the decision was made by the members of the church because the elders, you know, mm-hmm. suggested at the end that uh, there's really no reconciliation. So that member really wanted to be part of the flock. Yeah. yeah. But again, it was a beautiful process just to see. And it's great to know that we're learning this here and that we we have these tools, right? That mm-hmm. If needed, we can, uh, we can you know, uh, redirect this chief and, and, and show them the, the way. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully it never happens. Right. Yeah. And that's the importance of, of shepherding the flock, right? You have to, you know, sometimes refocus the wayward sheep. And, you know, occasionally, you know, a shepherd would, you know, break a leg of a, of a wayward sheep that kept running off so it wouldn't run off anymore. Not saying that we do that, but, you know, that's, that's part of, you know, that's that tough love, right? You have to, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. Um, um, but it's, it's, that, it's that idea of, you know, look, 
you know, we've told you once, we've told you twice, you know, now, now you got to face some consequences, um, you know, and either, either repent or, you know, we're going to have to, you know, take further action. But we've, we've offered you as much support, as much counsel, as much, you know, biblical insight as, as we can. Um, and it's it, at some point it gets to that it's it's up to that person whether or not to you know to choose to accept that teaching and um, and love and you know reconciliation attempts or to just completely turn away. Um, so it's unfortunate, but it does happen uh, on occasion. So. Mm-hmm. So we're all held to that same standard. Right. Granted, there's things that um, we all feel are more egregious than others. But um, how does these, the, do the pastors and the elders um, determine what is of a nature that it goes to that point versus it doesn't need it? I think it would be... And I don't know because I've never had to deal with this yet. Um, but I, I, would, I would think it would... I mean, obviously, case by case, but it's it's um, the the willingness of the person in in fault um, to recognize their own actions and to either repent of it or say, "I've done nothing wrong," um, you know, and and then it's a it's a it's a judgment call. Um, but I think, you know. It, just to say, for example, it comes out that you know some a member of the church is is you know living in adultery or something like that, and you know they're open about it, but they're not they're not repentant of it at all. Um, they're like, I, you know, it's my life. I'm gonna live it the way I want it. You can't tell me anything. Well, then, okay, well then you know if if you're being open about it in the in the congregation, that's not healthy for the for the congregation. Um, and so, you know, I'm sure there would be multiple steps along the way before it would be brought before the church, you know, to try and reconcile this person um, to, you know, to repentance. Um, but, you know, things like that, you know, like, um, you know, they're, they're just, there are some times where people are just so ensnared in their sin and so stuck in their sin that they don't realize or don't recognize or don't want to recognize that they're doing something wrong, um, that, they're, that they're living in sin. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the process is designed to call people out, to call people to repentance, to, you know, say, hey, look, there's this, there's this sin issue in your life that you need to recognize because it's, you know, it's got consequences, it's got a ripple effect, it doesn't just affect you. And, um, you know, to try and get that person to recognize their need for repentance. But then when they, um, if they're just in open rebellion, um, then, then you have to go the next step. But, um, open, you, repetitive, unrepentant. Yes. Yeah. Open, repetitive, unrepentant. Yeah. Um, these are things that are just blatant sin issues that the person's not, you know, coming to terms with. Um, you know, so... I don't know. Did I answer your question? Like, I don't. Someone, I mean, adultery, obviously. Was yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. But even somebody who is openly lying, repetitively, mm-hmm. right. unrepentantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it could be, like, I mean, 
and like I said, it's kind of a case by case. Has this person been talked to before? Has right. somebody like said, "Hey, you know, you're 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 talking a lot." Well, like, yeah, right. And then you know exactly. Um, so it's not like you know we're sitting there going, "Oh, you didn't bring your Bible to church today. You're going before the church." You know, it's it's you know, it's not like that. Um, it's it's it, these are these are serious egregious you know, blatant, open rebellion of, you know, non-repentance, um, unrepentant hearts that, that we're talking about. I had some last thoughts. Like, I was kind of wishing that they had kind of emphasized kind of the nature of the type of sin that they were referring to. Mm-hmm. But I feel like someone that isn't, like, hasn't been a Christian very long reading this, they might get the wrong kind of, they could have gotten the wrong message or interpretation of it. Right. Um, that here they're referring to that kind of, that serious yeah. And so I think there wasn't a distinction. I think between mm-hmm. the two, and that would have been nice. Yeah. You're right. I think I think kind of diving into that a little bit deeper to to expand upon that would have been would have been helpful. Um, but in in the context of of having a conversation with a non-believer um, or somebody who's new to church or not willing to cross the threshold to go to church yet. Um, you know, this, these are these are some helpful things to know um, because they can say, "Oh, I've heard about church discipline. Does that mean if I, you know, lie to my mom, you know, one day about where I was, that I'm going to be brought before the church and cast out of the church because I lied?" Like, no. But you know, these are these are certain. You know, you have to kind of differentiate between what that means, and um, so hopefully that that kind of helps. You know, so open, rebellious, unrepentant. Um, these are kind of the th- you know, some characteristics to look for in, in, a, in a church discipline scenario. Um, all right, well, let's move on to chapter four and micro machine talk through it here. Um, so the main idea of chapter four is that differences provide an opportunity for the church to show the world what true unity really looks like through humble, charitable, kingdom cooperating love, but it requires energy, effort, prayer, instruction, confession, and repentance but it's worth it. So we start this chapter off uh, in talking about uh, um, unity here. It's Christ prayed for our unity. Ours is in the, the capital C church. He prayed for the church. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We see Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, who were, who were once off far, have... Man, I can't read. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Then Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, I therefore, or 1 through 6, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, the, uh, called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, 
who is over and through all and in all. So he goes into a, a history of the church, um, and for time we're going to kind of breathe, breathe through that real quick. But um, suffice it to say there have been a lot of divisions and um, splits and schisms and theological disagreements, um, but despite that, most Protestant churches remain unified in the key tenets of the Christian faith. So we would classify those as first-tier issues for everybody who's gone through Connect class. Um, so first-tier issues, what are the things that you have to believe in order to be a Christian, to call yourself a Christian? Those are things that most churches would agree on um, and, and, and are unified in. But why are there so many different churches? Um, for one reason, there's necessity, uh, out of necessity. Geography hinders all saints from meeting together. We can't all meet together in one spot. Um, all the time. And we have some biblical evidence to support this. So Galatians 1-2, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So not just to the church of Galatia, to the churches of Galatia, indicating that there was more than one. one uh, 1 Peter 1-1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappa Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So multiple churches again. James 1, 1, James, a servant of God and, the Lord of, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Again, multiple churches. And then in Revelation 1, 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So, obviously, again, and then... It goes into each one of those seven churches throughout the you know the next two chapters and messages to them. But it's it's the idea that there are there are multiple different churches, not just one um, one location. You know, so there's not like this one mother church that everybody goes to. Language barriers also can serve as a necessary reason for different churches. So you know you may have a a Spanish-speaking church, you may have a Korean-speaking church, um, you know, a Haitian church that speaks, you know, French or French Creole. Um, you, you may have all kinds of different, different churches that speak different languages because not everybody in the world speaks the same language thanks to the Tower of Babel. So we have, you know, this whole um, conglomeration of, of churches, and we'll see what this looks like when we get toward the end here. Um, and then separate gatherings can be based off of necessity, not sinful division. So, you know, that's, that's kind of the, the thrust of this, this section here is that, you know, why are there so many churches? Well, because there need to be. Um, and and there's, there's other reasons as well, but um, we have doctrinal convictions. So uh, Romans 14.5, one, one, one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So we have this idea of, you know, oh, well, there's different, different viewpoints of certain doctrines. Well, an example of this would be baptism practices. Um, you know, for example, we might, you might see, you know, the Presbyterians baptizing infants. We don't baptize infants. We have believer's baptism in full immersion, not sprinkling. And so there's, there's doctrinal differences, but that doesn't mean that we disagree on the main things, the main tenets of the Christian faith. It just means that we, we have arrived at different um, understandings of certain doctrines. And so... Um, you know, but we can still we can still cooperate in fellowship. Um, these matters of conviction must be followed in faith. 
for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, as we see in Romans 14, 23. And there are some other areas different, of differences in convictions as well. You see um, baptism we talked about, um, Lord's Supper, which we talked about earlier, church government, um, how a church is structured, how it, how it, you know, another word for this could be church polity, um, how a church is structured in their leadership structure, whether or not, um, you know, a hot-button topic, whether or not women can be pastors, you know, where, where can, you know, what, what are the differences in, in where men and women can serve in the church? Those are, those are some doctrinal differences. Um, understandings and interpretations of the end times, um, that we would classify as a third-tier issue. Um, spiritual gifts, uh, philosophy of ministry. So whether or not you have small groups in Sunday schools or go on missions or things like that, these are, these are um, other doctrinal convictions. Um, lastly, we also have personal preferences, which is where we would classify all of these, all personal preferences would be classified in like a, a third-tier um, issue. Um, so, but we must remember that unity in Christ doesn't require uniformity in culture, style, and expression. Um, so um, there's, there's a few warnings that are listed in the book here. So be careful not to pursue preferences at the expense of truth. So don't just go to this, this church because, oh, I like the, you know, the, the carpet and the, the comfort of the pews, and they have stadium-style seating as opposed to, you know, um, you know, just, just flat on the floor and, you know, et cetera. Like, don't, don't, it, but if that church is not preaching the gospel, they're not, they're not practicing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they're not, you know, um, living, living out as holy as they can, you know, don't, don't sacrifice truth for convenience or personal preference or comfort. Um, uh, be careful not to pursue preferences at the expense of others. Um, and we see a couple instances here. Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I've heard people um, before say, oh, you know, well, why did you, why'd you leave that church? Well, I just wasn't getting anything out of it. Well, did you put anything into it? No, I just, it, it wasn't meeting my needs. It wasn't, you know, I didn't feel like I was being served. Okay. Um, you know, we, we, we might be able to dig into that a little bit more and you know, kind of understand what you're, what you're talking about. But there, there, are, there is that mindset where church can be a, a cons- there, there can be a consumer mentality when it comes to church. Um, people come and consume, but rather than, rather than give, uh, give out. Uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 5, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, so think about you know, where you are, how you can serve, what you can do, what you can put in. Um, third warning, sinful attitudes can ensnare true believers that result in sinful divisions or sinful splits. So Paul warns against this in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So we have to be careful not to have these, you know, allow these sinful attitudes to kind of creep up into us, um, you know, and, and to, to take pride in the wrong things. Um, 
So what, what does a unified church or does the unified church look like? Any, any thoughts or examples of what the unified church looks like? Heaven. There you go. If you look at Revelation 7, 9 through 10, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their heads, in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. This is a look into the window of the heavenly worship service. Um, and we get that glimpse of, imagine if you're walking down a street and you hear a church service going on, you're walking by a church and you look in the window and you see people worshiping. Well, this is what John's doing in Revelation. He's, he's got an, a, a view, a vantage point into a worship service happening in heaven. And this is what he describes. Um, and it's a beautiful picture of, of a unified church. Um, I love that it includes everyone, like nations, tribes, tongues, languages, that's the same thing, people standing before the throne, um, worshiping God. Um, what an amazing, amazing picture that, that paints. Um, so we can pray that the churches would be unified, and we can pray for other churches um, we can pray for ourselves, our own church, our, um, our attitudes. We, we can ask God to give us humble posture towards other churches. We can ask God to help us speak of and act charitably towards other churches. Oh, you guys are from that church. I'm not helping you. You know, like, oh, you're our competition. There are no com- There is no competition. Um, we're not in competition with other churches. Um, we're all trying to work together to, to save souls. Um, so we're praying for other churches, and we can also seek ways to cooperate together in kingdom work. So uh, one example of that is the Pillar Network. We can partner with other churches, um, other like-minded churches that are different from us, that have different people than us, but are still united under the same gospel. And we can partner together, work together um, to achieve kingdom work together. So any, any questions? I'm talked out, so um, I'm gonna have to ask some questions with y'all. But um, let's take a let's take a five minute break, and we'll come back. Um, but keep it at five minutes or less, uh, and we can um, get some discussion in.